Father, we thank you this morning that we could gather without distraction, read your word, heed these words of life, be encouraged, be challenged, receive food for our soul. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you that we could sing worship songs together, exalting your name, how good you are, that our identity is found in you. Now as we come to your word, may you nourish our souls. May you uh, just fill us with your truth and help us to live it out. And as I share it, may you give me clarity in the words that I speak and wisdom in how to share. We thank you for your kindness and goodness in our life. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to be speaking on discipleship. And uh, as Rebecca was reading, if you were worried that this was going to be a seminar on marriage, don't worry any longer. It might be, it might not be. It just depends how you receive it. It's a many, it's a, discipleship in a family is a very important topic for many reasons. And one of them is the fact that you probably spend the most time of your life in the family unit. It is more time than you spend at church on Sundays. It's more time than you spend in after-school sports. It's more time than you spend catching up with church folk for coffee or in the weekly midweek gatherings. You see, the people in your home are those, from those whom you spend time the most. And so the question becomes, how do we harness the time that we spend with one another? How do we intentionally use this precious time that God has given us? And how much thought do we put also into family discipleship? Last week, we looked at the definition of discipleship being this. Discipleship is deliberately, intentionally relating to another Christian with the aim of doing them good spiritually. Uh, that sounds like a great definition. You can thank Capitol Hill Baptist Church and Mark Dever for that. That is where I found it. But once again, it is deliberately and intentionally relating to one another with the aim of doing them good spiritually. So the question this morning is, how do we do that within the family context? How do we disciple in the home? How do we do good spiritually to our spouse and our believing children? Again, it's an important question because the people that we spend the most time with, consequently, are the people that mold us the most in our life. For children, the interactions in the family shape how they view God, how they approach life in hard and difficult circumstances. They're in essentially in boot camp for 18 years. For our spouses, intentionally doing good supports the family unit, encourages the husband and wife to fulfill their God-given roles. And really what Paul was saying here, it displays the gospel to the watching world, which is the purpose of marriage. You see that discipleship within the family is probably one of the most hardest tasks, yet it has the greatest output when we put our time into it. Now, sadly, often this part of our Christian life is, I would say, at times neglected. At times, it is diminished. Emphasis is put on one-on-one -on -one discipleship in the church or committing yourself to a certain ministry, but not as much emphasis is put on how are you intentionally leading your family and shepherding your family. Why so? I thought of a number of reasons. It could be that men as a whole have neglected their God-given responsibility to lead, being passive as spiritual shepherds in their home. It could be that there's been attack on the roles of men and women in the family, leading to confusion who is supposed to do what. It could be that the family unit has been under attack ever since Genesis 2. <laughs> and not only then, but in our society today, undermining the husband and wife through the rise of the needs of the individual. It could be that we have moved away from the view of a classical family, intergenerational, with one singular purpose functioning as a family team to more of the modern family where the individual's needs are raised above the family as a whole. It could be simply that the previous generation did not leave a good example of what discipleship in the family looks like. Maybe what was more important was how to get a good education good job, status, and worldly ambitions may be drowned out the spiritual endeavors. 
These are the reasons why families are at the place where they're at today with historic rates of divorce. Teenagers and young people having a bunch of identity crisis. I don't really want to paint a picture of doom and gloom, but the reality is, is what Paul Tripp says, we live in a broken down home. Windows are busted, the floors squeak, the roof leaks, the walls are thin. The environment that is coming from without, the storms are pushing into the home. And this is where the remedy for this broken down house is the gospel. The remedy is Christ. And so God has a plan for the family, and God has always had a plan for the family. And so we should not be taken aback at what is happening in today's society because it is a direct attack on God's design. It's been under attack from Cain and Abel to Joseph and his brothers to Moses to Israel intermarrying and having multiple wives. But Christ came to restore it all and reminding us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives live with your, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Wives, respect your own husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first command with a promise. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in a discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so this morning, I want to look at the familiar passage that we already read, Ephesians 5. This is going to be our foundational passage, but we're also going to be looking at Genesis 1 and 2, for Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's the book of origins that displays for us what the family is, the purpose of the family, the roles of husband and wife. And what we see, even when we look at the New Testament, whether that is 1 Timothy or Matthew, Paul in 1 Timothy is arguing that the woman should respect, and what he says is he references back to Genesis. When the Pharisees asked Jesus about a certificate of divorce that Moses allowed. Jesus goes further and goes back to Genesis chapter 2 and says that the two shall become one flesh. If we look at the New Testament, you might be asking yourself the question, where is discipleship in the New Testament? You have Jesus, a thought leader, taking along with him a bunch of young single guys who are fishermen or whatever. Not all of them were single, but some were married. And he's taking them and he is creating um, a revolution, this change that is going on, conquering the world with the gospel. And we ask ourselves, where's the examples of family living? Paul himself said, it's better for you to just be single and live out the gospel, uh, live for the gospel purposes. Should we all forsake everything we have and live missionally? How do I balance intentional time with family and doing God's work? And what we see in the New Testament is the principles of what that looks like. But oftentimes, we don't have a lot of examples of what that looks like. And we, what we do find is in the Old Testament, a lot of examples of what intergenerational family team on mission does look like. So the New Testament, we find a skeleton. In the Old Testament, we find the flesh. And so there's three different paradigms of what family discipleship can look like. And I want you to pay attention on the screen. The first one is family and mission. Family and mission isolates the two categories. You have family, and then you have mission on the other hand. And so, that's what we would call isolation. Family as mission is idolatry. The idea here is that your family is your mission field. And while that is true, there is more to that than just your family being the mission. There is also a greater mission. And the one I want to argue for this morning is the last one, which is family on mission. It's integrated. Family together as a team on a mission. And we want to see what that looks like, how discipleship looks like to accomplish that purpose. And so here's the proposition for this morning. Family on mission, living intentionally by the power of the Spirit for gospel advancement in the home and the world. If I had to say in the home, I had to tag on and the world. So... Living intentionally, that is the key word. That's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5. Husbands love. To love means that you need to be intentional and loving. It doesn't always come naturally. Wives respecting, that is intentional. Parents then training their children, that is intentional. As a family does this, not only is the gospel advanced in the home, but also beyond. It overflows to the neighbors, to the kids, friends at school, to families at sports camp, and wherever else you meet other people. So before we get into our main points, I want us to look at the context and set the stage. 
Because if we're going to go to the thought of husbands love your wives and then wives respect your husband and children obey your parents, we have to lay a foundation for what is the fuel that's going to get you there. How are you going to be a Christian who is able to live that out in your life? And the setting of our passage is Ephesians 5, 3 through 21. Oftentimes we begin this passage with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But let's look a little bit earlier, the power of context. Paul is addressing missional living in the family unit. In verses 3 through 8, he talks about the things that you need to be putting away from your life, describing your past life, who you were. And now he's saying you are light in the Lord, and you should walk as children as light. You should expose the unfruitful works of darkness, expose shameful things, and don't be partners with them in their disobedience. Now, this is not something that is new. God chose a family, Abraham and Sarah, through whom the nations are going to be blessed. And he preserved this family throughout history. Now, how are we to fulfill this call? And the call actually consummates in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is, what is the mystery? The, 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 un, the union of man and woman, the marriage. So how are we supposed to fulfill this call? In verse 15, in 16 and 17 and 18, we see three parallel statements. The first parallel statement is found in verse 15, and it says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. In verse 17, it says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And lastly, in verse 18, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul is setting the stage. Here's a foundation for how you're going to live missionally in your life. And ultimately, why so? Because the days are evil. God is going to use the family unit to show what the gospel looks like, what reconciliation looks like, forgiveness, humility, and service. This was the seed that was planted in Genesis 2. God created one flesh. It was a creational prophecy of the intimacy of Christ and the church. And so this window into the relationship of Christ and the church through marriage goes all the way back to creation. Now, these verses and these three parallel statements that we just looked, like, looked at are foundational and pivotal to understanding verses 22 of chapter 5 into chapter 6. There is no way that discipleship in the family is going to be happening, husbands loving their wives, wives respecting husbands, children obeying, if there is no looking carefully, which verse 15 commands us to do, no understanding of what the will of the Lord is, and no, number three, filling of the Spirit. And I would argue that the reason why, at times, family worship might be neglected, the husband is not living in an understanding way with his wife, there is anger and frustration and upset parents in the home. It's simply because verses 15 to 18 are not being lived out. There is no filling of the Spirit, not understanding the will of the Lord, and not looking carefully how we're walking. Because if we do these things, there is much fruit. There is, as we would see here, a continual filling, not a leaning on self, but a leaning on Christ. And so as I look at these verses, I look at my own life and think, I'm preaching to myself as I'm preparing this. I need to be doing these things that I'm going to be sharing on Sunday. How can we disciple and instruct? How can be the gospel presented first and foremost to the kids in the home and then to the surrounding and watching world? It's when we lean on the power of Christ. A.W. Pink once wrote and said, The great mistake made by most of the Lord's people is in hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. So before we start addressing the different categories of husbands, wives, and children, I want us to look at verse 18 and one verb and one command, which is be filled. We find it here in verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. Now, first of all, we see that being filled with the Spirit is a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. 
It's not maybe you can take this and run with it, or maybe you can pass on it. No, the stakes are too high. That's what Paul is saying. The gospel is at stake when husbands and wives are not filled with the Spirit, walking in the will of the Lord. It's not about us. We are called and we are chosen for a higher and greater purpose. It's about Christ and His glory. So it is a command. He commands us to live like this. Be filled as a command. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is also continuous. It doesn't stop. It's because we're still in the flesh. We have sinful tendencies. We want to insist on what is the right way to hang the toilet paper roll or the right way to cook an egg or the right way to disciple or discipline, I mean, our kids. We're in this process of sanctification, waiting for that day of glorification. And until then, we imitate Christ, who was fully man, yet spirit and power doing ministry on earth. Let's slow down. He was fully man, yet spirit and power doing ministry on earth. You see, the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. He raised the dead by the power of the spirit. He calmed the storms by the power of the spirit. We see Jesus' earthly life was done in the power of the spirit. He was fully human like we were. And so we can't look at Jesus and say, well, he was God, so obviously he could be patient with his disciples. Obviously, he could be doing these hard things of loving hard people. He was doing it in the power of the Spirit, a Spirit-empowered man. And so if Jesus was doing this, then should not we do this likewise? And this is why we have the four Gospels displaying to us the life of Christ. So it's a command that's continuous, and the meaning of being filled is twofold. Let's use a contrast that Paul uses here with wine. And twofold meaning is to permeate and influence. When wine or any alcoholic substance enters a person's body, it permeates their bloodstream. It permeates their whole body because their bloodstream is in their whole body. Every part of their being even impairing their brain. And it begins to influence the person, to control that person. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means that the Spirit controls your life because He is dwelling in every room of your home. And you're not being controlled by your own desires, your own ambitions. You're being controlled by God's will, all of verse 17. Now, Micah is at the stage in his life where he loves to mix his breakfast, his lunch, and his dinner in his water cup. And once he puts that breakfast, lunch, or dinner in the water cup, it no longer tastes like water. It tastes like eggs. Tastes like lasagna, tastes like a half-eaten sandwich. You see the water is permeated by the substance that's being put in. And what Paul is saying, when you are filled with the Spirit, you begin to live out the call that God has given to you. You begin to taste, and when people can prick you, you bleed the Bible and all those other wonderful quotes that we know. It changes the color, the flavor, and the consistency. And so God's Spirit living within us changes that likewise. How we react to certain certain situations, our demeanor, our outlook on circumstances. Now, one of the most interesting things here is that when we are called to be filled with the Spirit, this is a passive verb. It's not active. You would think that a command, go do this, means that you are going to be doing it. But how can we be filled with the Spirit? Do we just tell God, fill me with your Spirit? But it says, be filled with the Spirit. We cannot actively grab hold of the Spirit and fill ourselves. What Paul and God is teaching us is that there's places where God's special grace abounds. We are to stand under the waterfall where God's Spirit is present, where God, God's Spirit is moving. And what are those areas in our life? It is Sunday morning service. It is a home group gathering. It is reading the Word. It's meditating on Scripture. It's prayer. These are all the areas that you can be filled with the Spirit of God. God is going to meet you there, and He's going to fill you, and He's going to be transforming you, and the Spirit is going to be permeating your life and changing your outlook and your living. And so look at, as we've seen the fuel for the discipleship in the home, look at the evidence or the fruit of this. There's four fruit that we see it begins in verse 19. We, the fruit of a spirit-filled life is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Secondly, in verse 20, giving thanks. You become a thankful person. If you're grumpy, now you know why. 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and singing and making melody. Now, this is the foundation. This is the fuel that now sets the stage for us looking at the three different categories. The first one, I want to speak to the husbands. And if you're listening this morning and you're not a husband and you're not a man, I want you to listen to understand God's design for how he created man and woman. The husband is an intentional husband. And we use the word, I'm going to use the word servant leader. Again, if discipleship is deliberately, intentionally relating to another Christian with the aim of doing them good spiritually, how are husbands supposed to do this? And the answer we find, we're going to go to verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Husband, love your wives. Now, we use that phrase often, so I want to use a different phrase, the phrase servant leader. This comes from the words of Jesus himself, who said, whoever is going to be the greatest among you must be servant of all. And so when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, as we heard in the sermon from last month, nobody questioned who was the greatest in the room. Everybody knew it was Christ. As Piper writes in the book Momentary Marriage, the divine calling of men is to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision. In Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, the author is right. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. And so it all begins with the husband. The husband sets the weather in the home, whether that weather is going to be gloomy or windy, stormy, whether it's foggy and confused or clear and sunny, the husband sets the weather in the home. And husbands, I want you to hear this, that the kind of weather that you set in the home is going to dictate how your wife is going to respond to you, whether she is going to, as verse 22, say, respect you or undermine you. It depends on how you are being a servant leader. So why is the intentional husband a servant leader? Well, the first thing is because this is your calling. Men, this is our calling. Usually when we think of calling, we think of a higher purpose. We usually, when we tell people to fulfill their calling, we're asking them to fulfill their purpose, to be in their, quote, zone of genius. Now, they could be ready for it or they could be growing into it. Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector and Peter the fisherman, they started with different people. Matthew was, in his old identity, a tax collector, and in his new identity, he was an investor into souls. Peter was a fisherman, old identity, new identity, fisher of men. There's a transition, there's something happening, there's something dying off and something coming to fruition. There's a calling. You didn't have this before when you were single, but now you have a calling, a calling to love your wife, to be a servant leader. Christ draws us and equips us to do that work. God calls us to come to a place that's uncomfortable, challenging. It's the exact place where you're going to fulfill your purpose. Now, biblical love is not romantic feelings. It's not physical attraction. It's not loving words apart from deeds. So what is it? Looking more carefully here in our verses, the first thing we see here, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And key word, gave himself up for her. Sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. These are the, the traits of a servant leader. A servant leader sacrifices. He doesn't say, I'm going to lead, so how about you go first, and I'll just wait and see what happens. No, he sacrifices, and he takes initiative, and he goes first. Second, we see it's service. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, the word, by the washing of water with the word. And so the servant leader's intention is that the things he does in serving is going to help his wife bloom and flourish, to bloom and flourish. Because the idea of service here is that when you serve, Jesus, when Jesus served with the water of the word, that he is purifying his church. So husbands, your love is supposed to be a sanctifying kind of love. Look how Paul continues this illustration. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. This is very simple. You know, when you're hungry or hangry, you feed yourself. 
When you are cold, you turn on the heater. When you're thirsty, you get water. My wife says, you know, that uh, God created, created women to go through harder things in, in, in life. And, you know, when I get sick, she's like, you're such a wimp. You just got a little cold and you're out for the day. You're in bed. You can't handle the kids. They're too crazy. You need it to be quiet. But she has to stay home, be with the kids, and keep on going with her life and not be able to hang out in bed all day. Husbands, love your wives as your own bodies because what is the blessing? He who loves his wife loves himself. Rebecca was surprised by that verse. She, she was hard for her to read it. Is it really true? You love your wife, you love yourself? Yes, that's what it's saying. Because if you love and you sacrifice and you put into another person, they're going to reflect that back to you. You're only going to make the environments in the home so much better. So once again, how is all this possible? It's when husbands are being filled with the Spirit. And one of the evidences of being filled with the Spirit, we find in verse 21 that says, submission. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We know that wives need to submit, but what in the world does it mean that the husband's supposed to submit to his wife? To submit means to subject or subordinate. So how does submitting to one another work in the context of church, in the context of family? When you submit to another person, what you're saying is, my desires and my needs are not as important as yours. You go first. We see this in Philippians 2. Think of the interests of others more than you think of your own interests. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So what is, what is the idea there? You're submitting your own goals and aspirations for the good of those who are around you. The idea is that you're more worried and, more worried and anxious for the good of others than your own good. And is that not the definition of love? Is that not what Jesus then did as we continue to read Philippians 2? He laid aside his rights and he willingly took a form of a servant. He's still God, but he lays aside his rights for the good of humanity. Now, at times, as men, we might think that if I'm not authoritative, if I give in to the needs of my wife, then I'm losing my masculinity to a certain degree. But what God is actually saying is you are fulfilling your masculine mandate when you live as a servant leader. You're not neglecting it, you're actually fulfilling it. And so, First, we see that husbands are to live as servant leaders because it's their calling. But secondly, it's because how, what God, this is how God created you. This is how God created you. We, I want to go to Genesis chapter 1. You can, you can go there. You can just listen as I read some of these verses. But one of the questions that I, I ask or this phrase that I often hear is, and I keep thinking about, and I agree with, is that if husbands ran their families like they ran, run a business or their hobbies, there would be much more to show for it. Why is it that men are very driven when it comes to business, hobbies, or sports, but not so driven when it comes to leading their family? The reason why men are driven is found in Genesis chapter 1. God created us in His image, and God is a creator, so we are creators. God created men to build. God created men to subdue the earth, to conquer. We see it in the very first chapter. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the earth. And God blessed them, verse 28, and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, subdue it and have dominion. And then in chapter 2, in the book of beginnings, we see that the Lord took the man put him in the garden to do two things, to work it and to keep the garden. But then in chapter 3, we have the fall. And the fall changes everything. I want you to listen to some of these statistics that reveal the current decline of manhood. Only 43% of men earn college degrees down from 60% in 1970. In 1950, 5% of men were unemployed. Today, it's 20%. Today, 20% of children live apart from their father, almost triple since 1960. And men go to church less than women. In an article entitled, The End of Men, it stated this, Man has been the dominant sex 
since, well, the dawn of mankind, but for the first time in human history, that is changing and with shocking speed. With the rise of adolescence in the past few decades, yielding to the, the average uh, age being 36-year-old, 36-year-olds for people playing video games, this is really influencing society and at times even influencing the church. Not only did God create men to lead, He gave them a responsibility to work and to keep. To, to work and keep is this idea of, of laboring. To work and cultivate is a call to labor. To keep is to guard and watch and preserve. And then God tells Adam, you shall not eat. He gave the command to the man, not to both of them. Eve was not yet created. Speaking of the moral standard that he was supposed to uphold. And so Adam would actually be the one to lead both in the spiritual matters of the moral, you shall not eat, and also of the physical matters of working and keeping. He was actually also given the task to name the animals by himself. He received the job, and he was given the command to obey. And this is all before Eve showed up on the scene. This is God's blueprints in Genesis 1 and 2 of men being servant leaders. And so how can we do this practically in our life? I want to give us some examples. I want to give us some examples. So intentional husband is a servant leader because this is your calling and because this is how God created you. So how can we do this? Well, this is going to be very practical. I want to give you some ideas. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's some things that have helped me and things I've learned from older men. One of the first ones is track. It's tracking. Keeping a ledger of your wife. When I first heard this, I was in seminary. The pastor said, he said, you got to write down what your wife loves. What kind of food does she like? Where does she like going? What does she enjoy doing in her free time? What kind of books does she like to read? You got to track her, see how she reacts in different circumstances and make sure that you're aware of those circumstances so that you can serve her in the right way, in the right capacity. I thought to myself, this is interesting. I've been married for a year and a half. I've done nothing like that. That's a good idea. Let me start doing it. So I created a Google Doc, and I started tracking what Anna likes. And periodically, I come back to it, and I serve her in that way by knowing what she likes. I'm a servant leader. I want her to follow me easily, not say, man, I don't want to follow this man. He doesn't serve me. He just thinks about his own interests. He's always sick, always tired, never taking initiative. I want her to see me living this out. There's intention in this. That's why we call it the intentional husband. Second thing is asking questions. Often asking questions like, what's the best way I can serve you right now? Or what are you struggling with? Remember, men are, are supposed to be spiritual leaders in the home, not waiting for the pastor to come up on Sunday to serve his wife, to the spouse. How is your walk with God or anything I can take off of your shoulders? You see, communication is the lifeblood of the marriage relationship. The lifeblood of the marriage relationship. Great communication equals awesome marriage. Okay, communication, and it starts to break down. Third thing, plan. Serving and surprising your wife. Do you, do you serve and surprise your wife? Whether that is a, a weekly date night or after you put the kids down, maybe play some card games, you chat about the day. I remember I heard C.J. Mahaney at a Resolve conference now probably 15 years ago share how he serves and surprises his wife when every Sunday... He just spends 10 minutes thinking, how am I going to surprise my wife this week? Am I going to get her a gift and get her some flowers? Am I going to leave a note? Am I going to take her out somewhere? And one way that I will serve her, will I do the dishes? Will I do the thing that she doesn't want to do, understanding that it will benefit her? And he shared that with me. He's already in his 60s. <laughs> I thought, man, this man is intentional. This man plans. He is serious about being a servant leader. He's serious about discipleship in the home. And the last one is lead family worship. Lead family worship. We're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but the idea here is when Isaac was walking with Abraham to go sacrifice, Isaac knew that there needed to be a lamb to sacrifice. Why? Because he was used to worship happening in his family. It wasn't a surprise that they were going up to sacrifice. And so this can be as short as five minutes or as long as one hour where you lead family worship in three simple parts, sing, pray, and read. So now that we've seen how the husband does good intentionally in his family, specifically towards his wife, what about his wife? 
How can the wife now do good intentionally to the husband? Once again, discipleship is intentionally relating to the, uh, another Christian with the aim of doing them good spiritually. So how are wives supposed to do it? Well, it, there's many ways that this can happen. It's keeping order in the home or training the kids daily, influencing them in a godly way, being patient with her husband's shortfallings, prepping a great meal, being a partner in the family team when it comes to decision-making, bringing wise inputs and perspective into a conversation. She is what we call a willing helper. I remember a preacher once said that the most important task, that, that being a mother is one of the most important tasks in the world. Now, I know there's some prickly situations once we get to verse 22 of Ephesians 5, and we're going to address those, but I want us to see the big picture here. So first of all, let's look at Ephesians 5 once again in verse 22 and see that the intentional wife is a willing helper because this is your calling. Now, ladies, I want to speak to you. Are you a willing helper? Now, in verse 22, we see the wives are to submit. And we've already discussed this idea of submission is looking to the interests of others above your own interests, to not hold on to your privileges or rights. And so another word that we can use is respect. I believe respect is upstream from submission. I believe that if a wife respects her husband, it will be easy for her to submit to him. Now, what is very interesting in verse 22 is that the word submit does not even exist in the Greek New Testament manuscript. Now, don't be surprised and start questioning the validity of God's word. What this really is, is that the New Testament English translators smoothed out the translation and it moved on from verse 21 where in verse 21 it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's everybody in the church, and there is a word, likewise, wives to your husbands. So the submission is not, this word submit is not a command. It is just an overflow of a spirit-filled life and everybody submitting to one another. And then likewise, wives submit to your husbands. The previous command that we find is found in verse 18, which is be filled with the Spirit. And then the next command that we find is in verse 25 that says, husbands, love your wives. And in between those two, there's no commands. There's just the overflow of a Spirit-filled life, which is a life of a person who thinks of others' interests more than their own. Submission, let's define it, is not putting the husband in the place of Christ it should be a list coming up soon. Submission is not giving up independent thought and becoming intellectually stagnant. Submission is not giving up all efforts to influence her husband. Submission is not giving into every demand of the husband. It's not the same as being fearful or timid. It's not being a doormat or becoming immobile. Submission is not believing her husband is infallible. This is not what submission is. This is not what the Bible teaches that it is. Submission is thinking of other interests more than your own, flowing out of you walking in the Spirit and really fitting your life in with God's design for marriage and family. John Piper writes what biblical submission is, the divine calling of a woman to honor and affirm the headship exercised over her and to assist carrying it through with her gifts. Let's, let's open that up a little bit. Is this idea of honoring and affirming the headship. God designed man as to be the head. But how does that happen? You assist by carrying it with your gifts. You have gifts. We're going to see how this is so rooted in the Godhead, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Genesis 2 gives us a picture, and we're going to draw out how you can intentionally do good. And so secondly, you're, in, you're a helper because this is how God created you, a willing helper. You see that God created Eve out of a need. So, woman, you should start feeling good about yourself. There was a need. When God created man, it was good, but there's still something missing. God said, wow, there's something not good. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A not good thing in a sinless world? 
Adam is alone, alone in, in companionship, alone in his task that God has given him. He was socially incomplete. And so God specifically fashions an appropriate solution in the name of Eve to operate to God's glory as Adam's helpmate. She would be what then God would designate as very good where it had previously had not been good. But God created woman as a suitable help, helper, a suitable helper. I'll make a helper suitable. Suitable means someone appropriate or fitting or a compliment. This is not, this is not really a, a, a label of denigration, but a label of honor. To be a helper is a label of honor. What is being said is, Adam, you have some weaknesses and you need an Eve. Dennis, you have some frailties and, and problems, and you need an Eve to help you out. A label of honor to be a helper. This is very vital. How many times does God call himself our help? All over the Old Testament, God calls himself our help. A label of honor. Not saying, oh, I'm your helper. No, God helps us. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God lovingly helps his people in their need of deliverance. He assists his people where they could not, they could not help themselves. Husbands, there's areas where we can't help ourselves. We need our wives to come in and be that helper. There's times where we're short-sighted or weak and we need help. You see, there needs to be these different roles, equal yet different. This is how God designed it. There needs to be a positive and a negative on the battery for things to work together. This reminds me of my son Ezra now. He's, he's seven. He doesn't play with Play-Doh anymore. He plays with these kits that we order from Amazon. And I can give him a kit, and I know it's going to be quiet for at least an hour. <laughs> and he goes into his room, and he starts putting this kit together, whether it's a car or whether it's a boat. They can just put into the water, but they're all things that he makes himself with little electrical circuits. And at the very end, he puts in the battery. And one time he came to me, he said, Dad, you got to help me. I finished it, but it's not working. I put it in, it's, it's not working. I said, okay, let me, let me see. He said, we're probably going to have to restart, take it apart. I was like, don't have time for that. <laughs> let's see, let's, maybe there's a quicker solution. <laughs> so I take the thing, I look at it, oh, pff. Easy solution. The battery was put in the wrong way. One of them was put in correctly. The other one was not put in correctly. Just a very simple tweak. And everything in that, in that little car or whatever it was, the boat, started working all of a sudden. And friends, this is what God has designed in a marriage, the positive and the negative charge, the differences that actually work for our good, that bring harmony in the marriage relationship. Because marriage is simply a bigger picture of the Trinity. It's all rooted in the Godhead. We see the Son submits to the Father. When the Father makes the plan of creation, the Son doesn't just say, well, Father, great plan, but maybe you should go and die for the people. Christ willingly submits and takes on a form of a servant. Both the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And the Father, He possesses that supreme authority. Bruce Ware, he writes this, the three persons love one another, support one another, assist one another, team with one another, honor one another, communicate with one another, and in everything respect and enjoy one another. That's the beauty of the Godhead. And when God created man and woman in his image, that's what was being reflected. Oh, friends, how society has this churn and just ravished marriage and churned roles upside down and transformed everything that was good that God created into making it evil. It's evil for man to have authority. It's evil for women to respect and submit. When it's actually the most beautiful design. And when you do live like that, that's when there's great blessings. So submission is God's way of attaining and maintaining function and order in the home. Once again, attaining and maintaining function. So what are some practical things that you're able to do, wives, this morning? First one is this. Encourage and edify your husband when he's struggling. And really, in all of these, when I say these practical steps or examples, what you can do is any one of the 61 and others of the New Testament. And maybe this time, your husband needs some encouragement, struggling in business, struggling in work, or struggling in parenting. 
Last week, my wife has been taking me aside and saying, Dennis, you got to understand, you got to be a little bit calmer. You know, with certain kids, you're patient. With other kids, you're quick. I have a higher standard for certain kids, not so much with other kids. So she is helping me. She's coming alongside, encouraging, and edifying me, giving input in conversation, second thing, about a decision. And I often ask my wife, what do you think about this? What should we do in this situation? Giving inputs about a decision, sharing perspective and angles. That's what it means to be a helper suitable. The husband can't see himself from the side. He has, he has um, things that he can need help in. Uh, third thing, asking her husband, what are the top three things that you would want me to focus on in this season where I can be a help? Uh, I remember uh, probably three, four years back, Anna and I were struggling. And we went to an older couple that we knew through the seminary. And their names were Ryan and Jennifer. And we just started talking to them and sharing kind of our differences because we are we're so different. I mean, you think you're so similar when you get married. You are so different. And Ryan said, and Jennifer, they're like, why don't you, this is what we do. And every season where things change, every six months, every two years, we're ask, ask one another, what are the top three things you want me to focus on in this season? Like, what is going to really help you? If I do these things right now, which, what are those things that are really going to help you? And so, this gives a bullseye on what to focus on. Now, Husbands, intentional husband, intentional wife, lastly, intentional parents. But before we get to the parents, our time is going to be coming to a close soon. The reason why I spent so much time on the first two is because <clears throat> the husband and wife are the nucleus in a family unit. If the husband and wife are not doing good to one another, intentionally doing good, which is the idea of discipleship, it is very hard for them to raise up children. It's very hard for them to influence children when you yourself are not growing. It is hard to do family worship, to train up kids in certain areas when you're not complementing one another and the roles that God has given you. And it's, it's going to be hard to do good to your kids. Disciple them when you yourself are maybe running on fumes, not being filled with the Spirit. Struggling to communicate with one another on expectations in the marriage. Battling for authority with one another. Parents, you set the environment in the home. You set the, the temperature. You create the weather in the home. And your kids will respond to that. You see, kids pick up on everything. And if you do these first two things that we discussed, then this last one of training children is going to be something that happens organically and something that happens naturally. And so lastly, intentional parents who are a training team. And we find out here in chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When we look at the husband as a servant leader, the wife as a willing helper, we see that they are part of, uh, they're together part of one in the same team. God has created men and women to function a certain way. They have parts to play on the team. One is a point guard, the other one is a power forward. And naturally, because they uh, are fruitful and multiply, they receive a center, a shooting guard, a small forward, and so on, depending where you want to stop in building that team. To be effective, each member on the team needs to be trained on how to play the game. There needs to be constant practice and repetition for the team to play well together. Each member on the team understands that they're also an integral part. You can't play basketball with five people on the court. You always hear this, oh, it's a four-on-five situation, easy bucket for the other team. Each one is needed to win the game. And so in Ephesians 6, we see here, I want to break down verse 4. First word we find is fathers. Fathers is a term that can be used for father as father or parents. And in this case, I believe it is parents because already we have husbands and wives addressed, mothers and fathers, and here we have parents. And it says, do not provoke your children, which means don't irritate them. Don't make them angry. How can we at times make our children angry or irritate them? Oh, we can say things like, why didn't you set that screen properly? Or how did you miss that shot? It was so easy. Why aren't you passing the ball to your sibling? And saying this, 
what you're doing is you're expecting your 25-year-old, I mean your 5-year-old, to act like a 25-year-old. And I'm guilty of this. Now, why is there irritation and provoking? Well, because there is a lack of training. There's a too much leaning on discipline and not enough leaning on instruction. We cannot expect our kids to know how to do everything when we have not trained them. And one thing I've noticed is that, once again, good on discipline, lacking on training. And in children, when they don't know what is expected of them, that is what irritates them. The problem is not so much with the child at that time, but the parents from a lack of training. And now the child is provoked to anger because they didn't know that they weren't supposed to do that. It wasn't expected. It wasn't clear to them. And these are the two wings of the airplane that we study at the parenting conference of discipline and instruction. The best good that we can do to our children is to train them. Train them in various areas. Toddlers, we train them to come. We train them to sleep when we put them into their crib and not crawl out. But it doesn't always work because at two years old, they all start crawling out. We, tr we, we train them to stop or freeze or blanket time. Kids who are three to four years old, we train them to greet an adult or not interrupt and put their hand on your elbow before they speak. Siblings to resolve their conflict and have them role play of how they're going to resolve the conflict with one another. It's really funny to see that they know the exact answer of how they need to resolve conflicts, even the five and the three-year-old. Yet when it comes to it, in the moment, they don't. Teenagers, you could train them how to have a morning and evening routine and rhythm, how to have a great relationship with the opposite sex. Train them on how to live in this world of social media and online world. You train them because you've already walked past through it. You could also have a focus on mission-based training. And the idea here is you have a mission for your family. Articulate what your family mission is. Without the mission, what we end up leaning towards is we just want to have good kids or we want to look good in front of others. In our home, one of our pillars of our family is to have hospitality, to be hospitable. And so we really put a lot of effort in the table, making sure the kids are sitting throughout the whole time, making sure that they are talking when we're asking them questions, involved in discussion, and we train our kids. You see, the whole idea is family on a mission, on a mission. We're integrated. We're working together. Now, we're not going to go into details on how to train. You all know that. Demonstrate, drill, defend. That's where I'll end it at. In Genesis 14, we read that in Abraham's house, there was 318 people trained. Now, these were, these were soldiers, obviously, trained. But don't you think that Abraham was also training everyone else in his household? It was a normal part of life to train, to train, to train. Every so often, Anna and I get together, and we need to talk about how to work, what to work on for each child because the needs of training change so quickly, so we're on the same page. And then even this morning, we're training Micah not to climb on the kitchen table. And I wondered to myself, why is he climbing on the kitchen table? Where did that begin? It wasn't when I was at home. <laughs> but we train. We talk about it. We say, okay, we're not doing this. And we're on the same page about that training. And yes, it's funny when it's a two-year-old doing it, but how do you train your 15-year-old? And how do you train your 11-year-old and your 18-year-old? How are you on the same page about how you're going to bring them up in admonition of the Lord? You see, Paul Tripp says, we are ambassadors of God representing God's message in the gospel, God's methods, how God does things, principles in his kingdom, and then also character, displaying to our children the character of God. We don't have authority on our own. All of our authority is a God-given authority that God has given us to now utilize for the raising of the family. And so what can you do practically to do discipleship in the family? How can we disciple in a family? Well, we, number one, establish your family as a team. Family as a team. There's a difference between a team and a club. A, a club has no shared interest or time, not close to one another, no shared mission. Just like a, a babysitter, you just do what's best for you. But a team has a shared interest. A team has a purpose. A team has a culture. A team has a coach. A team has that shared mission. And so, establish your family as a team and not a club. Be intentional about how you spend time together, whether that's at the dinner table or how you're driving in the car. Buy some question card games you can ask your kids as you're driving. You establish your family as a team. You train your kids saying, this is your part. This is your part. You're important. This is your part. You're important. Second thing, establish family traditions. You see, teams have traditions. Weekly traditions, monthly traditions, yearly traditions. They know when the... Uh, when the 
the season is for that sport to start. They know when it ends. They know when they have the playoffs. They know when the end goal is in sight. And so family traditions, maybe having a Shabbat dinner, which is your just last uh, day dinner before your day off, whatever that may be. Waffle Sunday, movie night Friday, yearly camping, whatever it is. Establish family traditions so your kids enjoy being in the family. So they don't grow up saying, man, my family was so whatever it was, I'm ready to get out. Now, you might do all those things, and I'm only, you know, I'm much younger than many of you this morning. You might be telling me, Dennis, we did it. But, it, but I'm just saying we're working towards that, and we're letting God do the rest. But we're being intentional parents. Practice family worship. Like I said, Isaac knew that there needed to be a sacrifice when they're going up that mountain. It was not something that was new to him. It was like, whoa, we're doing family worship. What is this? We're sitting down after dinner time and reading the Bible and singing together and praying together. That's not what Isaac's response was. I remember speaking to a couple that was about a decade older than us. And I was like, how do you guys have all of your five kids just sit peacefully after dinner? Now, their kids were a little older, but like their youngest was about two and their oldest was 18. Like for almost an hour, and you're just discussing. And, and what, uh, what uh, the husband said was just, it was, it was so mind-boggling. He's like, this is all they ever knew. They grew up like this. They, they saw us worshiping together, and when we had each of the kids, they just grew up in this family worship setting. This is all that they've known. Another example, which actually has been very impactful in my, my own life, was visiting the home of one of my seminary friends. And at that time, he had four kids, and he's also about a, they're about a decade older than us, and we didn't have any kids yet, and we show up to their home for dinner. And it was the first time that I saw family worship happening outside of our home, back where I grew up with my parents many, many years prior to that. And the father sat down. He opened a psalm. It's like Psalm 42. And he has a question to the 12-year-old. He has a question to the 8-year-old and the 4-year-old and obviously not to the 1-year-old. And I just thought to myself, this is so beautiful. Why have, not, why have I not seen this? I, I've been in church pretty much my whole life. I'm going to seminary right now, and I haven't seen what, how beautiful this can be. Family worship so that... Children grow up understanding mom and dad worship every day of the week, not only on Sunday when it's time to go to church. Remember ultimately God's strength as you're doing this, that God does not call you to be a parent because you're able. He calls you to be a parent because he is able. And God will never call you to a task without enabling you to do it. Now, this was a lot of information. This could have been three separate sermons that's what I thought when I finished. I thought, hey, we're going to go for a one-shot because this is important. This is discipleship in the family. And as we looked at this idea, family on mission, living intentionally by the power of the Spirit for gospel advancement in the home and the world, we saw that the fuel to live intentionally, the fuel, is be filled with the Spirit. Friends, that's where it all begins. And if you're looking for, for growth in your life and you're not married or you're older and you don't have kids, the idea is one and the same. Being filled with the Spirit is your solution to many things in life because the fruit of it is beautiful. The fruit of it is someone who is giving thanks, singing, and making melody, addressing one another in psalms and submitting to one another. We saw that how the marriage points ultimately to the gospel. That's why it's so important to work on marriage. We saw how parents living in harmony, harmony leads to gospel advancement in the home. And so I'll close with three simple questions. Husbands, are you exercising servants' leadership in your home? Are you taking initiative? Are you being intentional? Wives, are you exercising being willing helpers? And parents, are you exercising being a training team? This is how we intentionally do good to one another and disciple one another in a home. And may the Lord help us to live this out. Father, we thank you for your words of life. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the encouragement from your word. We thank you that you are good to us. And when you have called us to something, you've already exemplified it in the Godhead. This is who you are. Authority and submission, sub submission structure there in the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you made us in your image and you call us Lord to live out our lives in a way that displays and puts the gospel on display to a watching world, first and foremost in our homes and then those who look around. So, Father, we pray, help us to be intentional. Uh, first, Lord, we just ask for forgiveness. Forgive us 
for maybe for passivity. If I remember many months, I, I was passive in family worship, passive leading my wife spiritually. Forgive me, Lord, for that. Help us, Lord, to be open as men with our weaknesses and our failures and to be okay without acknowledging that we need you in our life, that we need the power of the Spirit, that we need you to work through us. Father, may you help us to do this for the church to grow as the, fa- as the church is built up of family units. And may through all of this, your name be glorified and we experience the good and living our lives aligned with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.